Hello and welcome to Have You Seen It? I'm Emily. And I'm Ned. And each week we'll take you on a three-part cinematic adventure. We will be reviewing something currently in cinemas. A past or present wildcard. And something hot on a streaming service. So let us be your cinematic spirit guides. So you can stop scrolling. And start watching. So first up, we have a British film that you can only catch in the cinema at the moment, the unsettling slice of rural horror, Ennis Men. Now, Ned has only seen the trailer, so I have to be his guide and tell him whether he should bother seeing it and how much I think a ticket should be worth. Ennis Men, I've heard a bit about it. I've seen the trailer, but what's it about? So there's a bit of buzz around this film and you might have seen mentions of it on social media. I actually, the reason I chose to watch it was because I'd heard it reviewed by Mark Kermode. Uh, and he said, you know, absolutely, if you see one film this year, it's got to be Ennis Men. This year's not been going on for very long. They did so. say that. <laughs> but, you know, January 20th, it's the film of the year, apparently. So it's a film shot on 16mm. So it's a film on actual film, which we don't see very often these days. And it's set in 1973 on an uninhabited island off the Cornish coast where there's a single wildlife volunteer and her job is essentially to observe a rare flower. Um, and she goes on the same routine every day where she leaves her house, she goes to check the flowers, she comes back and it's all very mundane and boring. However, strange things start to happen. So different people appear, there's sort of noises and it kind of turns into this slight nightmare of repetitiveness where you sort of start to question what's real and what's a nightmare. It's really interesting it's filmed in actual film because it has that like quality that a lot of classic British horrors that we're associated with have and something that Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, a kind of great satire of bad 80s horror, has that kind of aesthetic as well. Yeah. It looked too weird. Mm-hmm and too creepy for me. I don't mind a horror. I don't mind weird. But it just looked like there wasn't going to be enough plot with the me being scared. Did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. I did enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. And it's interesting that you say that you think there's not enough plot to keep you entertained or engaged because there is little to no dialogue. Uh, it relies purely on the aesthetic which as you say is very because of the 16 millimeter it's very rich it's very beautiful mm. and and yet it tells this nightmarish story about grief and loneliness with essentially this one sort of main actress and then a few other apparitions and it's yeah it really sucks you in i came out and i'm still thinking about it are you a horror fan generally i am i would say it's like um <laughs> What do you say about different levels of adult food that you keep, you know, you keep trying them and you like them more and more? Oh, yeah, yeah, like spicy. Well, yeah. like boiling the frog. Exactly. Yeah, like being boiled. <laughs> so I used to not like horror at all. I wouldn't watch anything scary. But I have started to, like I watched The Babadook recently. Apparently that's incredible. It is fantastic. But okay. I'm, I'm sort of, um, you know, entry level uh, drugging my way into horror. So I've become a fan of that, I would say. I do love an American slasher. I yeah. do love like black comedy slashers like Scream or something like that. I'm not such a big fan of the thinky ones. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I kind of want a villain. I kind of want 
some teenagers who are thick and I kind of want not to care that much. Yeah. I kind of, I want it to be that you classic pop, ancient popcorn tragedy. popcorn horror. Exactly, yeah. There was that thing that um, uh, when I was doing ancient history at uni, they said that modern horrors mirror ancient tragedies where you're meant to sympathise with the characters but not empathise with them. Yeah. You're meant to be like, well, I feel sorry for them. They're getting ripped apart by this person. <laughs> but I don't see myself being in that situation. Right. Whereas I feel from Ennis Men yeah. that potentially it is something where you do start feeling like the main character. Yes, absolutely. And I think, yeah, yeah you're very right that it's because as the viewer, you are empathising with this main character that you get to a point where you're not sure what's real and what's not. And mm. Jenkin doesn't go to any length to try and explain or give any sort of closure at the end. It's just kind of perpetuating this nightmare. And so, yeah, it's it's very that, that you get sort of sucked into this kind of craziness, but you're not ever kind of allowed out of it from the film's perspective. Would you watch it again? Absolutely, yes. I think I would have to watch it again to try and, like, scratch the surface more of what was happening. So even just afterwards, when I was thinking about the different use of colour and... You know, there's a lot of these pops of primary colour against mm. a very bleak landscape and the protagonist is wearing this red jacket, which afterwards you're like, oh, that's obviously a nod to Don't Look Now. Yeah. And then you think, OK, that's also another film about grief and loneliness. But it's also Don't Look Now was made in the same year that Ennis Men was set in 1973. So there's all this like crazy... So it's like, even within that, it's like potentially a reference to something that the main character would have seen yeah. and like would have infiltrated into exactly. the back of her mind. And then mind. there's all, because Mark Jenkins, a Cornish filmmaker, and he's, um, his previous film, Bait, was also in this kind of very Cornish construct. Um, mm. There's a lot of Cornish folklore. There's a lot of references to this, to the landscapes and to, you know, men being lost at sea and mm. all these kind of folklores. It, does it kind of reflect Cornwall, do you think? Absolutely. And there is a tin mine, like an abandoned tin mine on the island. So, oh, does this sound scary even you say? <laughs> so part of her routine is she goes to look at the flowers and then she walks past this abandoned mine and drops a rock down every day and waits to hear the splash. Um, and that's sort of part of her routine is that interaction with the history of the place, which oh, is wow. quite interesting. But when, you were, when you're talking about Cornwall, because I, I think the perception of Cornwall as like a Londoner, is that it's like holiday destination yeah. and, you know, it's... It's like a poor area. Yeah. It's like a really poor... I've watched like some of Poldark, like, so I've done my <laughs> research. <laughs> but there are these films, like, you, well, like we mentioned Rebecca, Archipelago by Joanna Hogg is shot in the Silly Isles and that's very bleak and very depressing. And so there's something a bit spooky and that sort of history of the miners and the sailors and all that kind of thing yeah. in Cornwall that I think people like to tap into. I also feel that British film potentially isn't at its best point at the moment. I feel that a lot of British films being made, and by all, no means all of them, but a lot being made of a like, you know, like the potato society of like East Wittering or something. It's <laughs> like, it's those very... Guernsey literary. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's quite fluffy. Whereas yeah. this felt like it was really getting into the... I feel, I feel Downton potentially casts a bit of a shadow with, like... Yeah, it's that period drama kind of... Probably quite high budget, like, period yeah. dramas probably are. But yeah. it's what, what we think probably 
people from other countries want to watch. Yeah. Have you, actually, have you ever seen anything like it? I want to say, when I was watching it, the one thing that it did make me think of was, you know, in The Ring, where yeah. they watch the video <laughs> that yeah, they're yeah. not supposed to watch. <laughs> That's kind of what it reminded me of, because it's the sort of jarring montage of mm. innocuous items that then turn out to be more going on. So who would you recommend it to? So I think, let's be clear that Mark Jenkins is not trying to appeal to a mass audience. Um, but having said that, uh, when I attended, it was a completely packed out cinema. Mm. So there is definitely an audience for this. I took both of my sisters. They had no idea what they were about to watch because they couldn't be bothered to do their research. And I think they were both um, sort of felt the equivalent of going for a long run after they watched it. They didn't necessarily want to, but they felt good afterwards. So mm. <laughs> I would say as people who... So do they enjoy it? I think they did enjoy it, mm. but I, I don't think it, it's not a mass audience. Yeah. I think it's for a very specific niche audience who kind of appreciate this sort of thing. But it's interesting, though. If you took your two sisters who I suspect neither of them would have probably wanted to see it had they known what it was about, right. and they enjoyed it, or at least were happy they went, I think that's a pretty good sign for something which I felt would be too weird for me. And also, the best thing there, it's, it's an hour and 30 minutes. So mm, that is lovely. It's a, it's a sweet spot for, I, I personally find anything over like two, two and a half hours too long. But it whizzes through. And if you were struggling with it, it's not that long to sit yeah. through. So no, I didn't find it as long at all. So in an ideal world, if film tickets were what they deserve to be, mm-hmm. how much would this film ticket cost? I would pay exactly what I paid at the BFI, which was £12.50. Really? Yeah. Because not more? Not more. I feel like because it was really weird. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, I, I, pay, I would pay what I paid because it's a good... A hundred percent. You'd pay a hundred percent. I'd pay a hundred percent of the fee, yeah. Brilliant. So in the next section, which we have our wild card or arty film, otherwise known as Ned's pretentious pick, what have you chosen... For us this week, Ned. So this week I have chosen a Bengali film from 1955, and yeah, that's right, it's going to be a triple threat of pretentiousness. It's black and white, subtitled, and it's over 50 years old. It's the Three Kings. It's called Patha Panchali, or The Song of a Little Road, and it's by Satyajit Ray, who is a kind of legendary Bengali filmmaker. Amazing. And I must say, Ned, when you suggested it this week, I hadn't heard of it. I hadn't seen it. Um, Have you heard of Satyajit Ray? Nope. So what is it about, Ned? So it's a really simple story about a family in rural Bengal during the mid to early 20th century. It's, it's not quite shown when. And it's village life as seen through the eyes of a child, in this case Apu, uh, and his sister uh, Durga. Um, the father is kind of in and out trying to earn money for the family and the mother is trying to keep this family that's fallen on hard times, uh, keep their head above water. It's not a film heavy on plot. So it's on Prime, free on Prime, anyone can access it. The director is this really influential filmmaker and he's not just influential in India, he's also been very influential to Western directors. So the Darjeeling Limited uh, by Wes Anderson was dedicated to him. 
Was it? Yeah. So I that was dedicated to him. Wes Anderson is a huge kind of acolyte. Oh. Um, Martin Scorsese, a huge Sachet Ray fan, uh, and they, they met each other a few times. Wow. Martin Scorsese said, of this film, we were used to seeing India on screen, but for a purely colonial perspective, which obviously meant that the principal characters were Westerners and the extras, the people who provided the local colour and background detail, were Indians. We had no idea whether the stories were, were happening in Gujarat, Kashmir, West Bengal or Maharashtra. It was just India. And so it, I think, was very influential in changing people's view of the internal life of rural India, the internal life of Indians, as separate from part of the Raj. Because it, yeah. it had only been out of the Raj for about seven years. Yeah, and I read actually that it was one of the first films to come out of independent India. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. You watched it. Did you enjoy it? I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, mm. which also that even me saying that makes me feel quite guilty because it is such an epic film and it's telling these very personal stories. Mm. And I, I did appreciate how it was in contrast to the sort of, I guess, the Indian films of the time, which are very escapist and you know all bells and whistles this was very kind of melancholic and like provocative realism it was yeah it was quite gritty in that way i think it was it was heavy to watch yeah. and it was emotional and it but it was such a slow burn for me that i i felt like i'd been on this ride yeah <laughs> and there was no reward at the end yeah it I can't, I'm not going to disagree completely because I think that for the first hour I was so in love with the setting. I was so in love with the music and yeah. the language and just the little vignettes, let's call them, of like, of life. And I, I just was loving that, um, so there's a bit in the film where some travelling theatre comes to town. It's like a small scene and Apu, the main character, is watching it, this little play and I thought I've seen this scene so many times of a boy in small town America watching something on TV for the first time or like someone in England you know on English TV just that moment as a child where you get really into something yeah and it manages to tell this very universal story but entirely rooted in Bengal like it couldn't mm. be anywhere else but Bengal but it's telling a very universal story but it wore off a bit that feeling of, wow, this is great. And I wonder whether it would have been better to see it in a cinema as part of a, like, where you could fall, you could just fall into it and yeah. forget about time and not check your phone yeah. and all of that. So, yeah, I, I would totally agree. I think seeing it in a cinema where you could be totally swept up and you could enjoy it with others and then like you know talk about it afterwards and mm. and ha have a real sort of captive moment for it whereas watching it on my slightly average sized tv mm. um with other distractions potentially going on meant that i probably wasn't as swept up in it as i would have been if i'd seen it in a cinema and also those big kind of sweeping scenes of the scenery like with the train and the pampas mm. grass and just seeing those on the big screen in that richer format would definitely yeah. have, have helped, I think. I think it's probably going to be a film that's going to stick with me. The scenes, like the train, 
the, the scenes where something actually happens are so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that actually, and they're so well <laughs> shot. Like, it doesn't, it really didn't feel like it was shot that long ago. Because no. I felt it was a very feminist film. Mm. Yeah. In a way that I wasn't expecting a film made in 1955 to be. Yeah, I kind of, and also because the father kind of, because he goes away, right? So yeah. that sort of figure is taken out. So you have the grandmother, the mother, the daughters. Yeah, I thought it was very Spielbergian. And I looked up Satyajit Ray and, and, and Spielberg. And apparently um, there was quite a, there was a bit of beef because apparently Satyajit Ray tried to make a film about an alien landing in Bengal and being adopted by a Bengali child. Wow. And when E.T. was made, this was like a couple of decades after he'd sent his screenplay round, uh, he was like, Satyajit Ray was like, look, I've got no issue with, with um, Spielberg, but I think that the, the screenplay I sent has been filtered through Hollywood down to BET. And I think Spielberg took it quite Ouch. personally yeah. and was like, you know, but look, watching it, I was like, yeah, no, I, I... You can see it. Would you see any of his other films? Would you see the sequel? So I did, yeah, I read about, apparently there's two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a trilogy. A, a like, trilogy. Like Star Wars. <laughs> like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, yeah. Would, I wouldn't rush. Mm. If, like, the BFI was doing a season of them, potentially I would go, but I wouldn't rush to see the sequel, even though I know that that makes me sound a heathen and I probably should. Who would you recommend it to? I think uh, cinema and film study students. Mm. Um, and people who were interested in the history of the time. Yeah. I don't think a lot of your Marvel watching mm. uh, sort of pals would be so keen on it. But yeah, I think definitely the higher brow viewer. <laughs> yeah. What level of education should this be shown to you? Should this be put on um, on a day when a teacher can't be bothered and just wants to shut, shut the children up? Or is it film school? So this, this for me, so at um, my university, we could study like basically wherever we wanted. I would say this is a first year film studies for someone who just took the module because they thought it was easy. Okay. So not, not third year really like... No. No, okay. Yeah. All right. Great. I, I also think it would be really good to reference in like essays and stuff. The more like the further you progress in your education. Yeah. So it would be good to get an early doors. So, section three. <laughs> Again, hot off the press. This is the British programme at the moment. We watched The Traitors. Now, Emily, what's The Traitors about? So, The Traitors, which is BBC iPlayer, is essentially mafia, but made into a reality TV show. So you have 22 strangers at this castle in the Scottish Highlands, and they are a mixture of the faithful contestants and the traitors. And they're all competing to win this prize of £120,000. And the traitors are obviously trying to undermine the faithful, mm. kill them off, uh, and try and win the prize for themselves. Yeah. So Mafia is like a parlour game. It's also called Werewolf um, that, that you may have played where you sit around, there's a games master, tells everyone to shut their eyes. They tap two people on the shoulder and uh, those two people have to convince everyone else when everyone opens their eyes to kill someone else off. Right. That's broadly how it works. There are further details. Yeah. So essentially, the game is about trust and it's about 
convincing people. It's basically about turning people against other people. Yeah, it's just about manipulation and lying and also, yeah, gameplay, essentially. Why do you think it's got such a buzz? So I... I love reality TV, yeah. but famously, like, I don't love, like, games shows that much. Like, mm. I, I love Big Brother, like, Selling Sunset, like, all that kind of thing. But with game shows, I'm a bit like, oh, yawn. But what they've done with this is because they're in this castle in the Highlands and they've chosen these characters, the casting in the show is phenomenal. Yeah, the production, they have smashed it. It is so well done because they've got, like, policemen, yeah. they've got a magician, they've got, like teachers they've got all these people they've got a guy who wrote a book about games and how yeah. to play them so they've really chosen the characters so well and i think they're all so into it they're all like 110 percent playing the game they're so confident and they all come with some baggage which either gives them overconfidence or something to be um how do i put it something to be like something for other people to be suspicious of yeah it reminded me of when I was really young and Big Brother first came out and you were seeing, in a way, people who didn't know what they got themselves into. Right, and that's, yes, that's why I think this show potentially is also so compelling because I don't, with, that, with a couple of exceptions, I don't really think any of them are in it for the Instagram followers. I no. think they're there just for a good time. But even the ones who are in it for the Instagram followers, I think that it does towards... Endgame maybe potentially influence their play, but I think even they didn't realise what an incredibly stressful experience they were signing up to. Yeah. They were like, this is going to be a bit of fun. I'm going to come in as myself, you know, as a version of myself, which is televisual. And then when the Eye of Sauron turns on them, like... They would lose it. Yeah. They absolutely lose their minds yeah. because it is so horrible. And because there are very few traitors... The majority of people, just statistically, the majority of people who the eye turns on are faithful. Are faithful. Yeah. That, like, they can't, they can't handle it. And you realise, I mean, this is not a spoiler. In the first episode, you realise people just go off, essentially, people who make them feel uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Ma that really stood out to me. It was the sort of, the slight weirdos or the sort of socially awkward ones. Yeah. That people really, and, and the, the sort of hierarchy of, like, the young and the cool, and then the older ones who they kind of respect and listen to a bit more. Yeah. Like, it's really interesting to see how the dynamic there were. Essentially, the producers are aware that people can be killed off by the traitors for not being as physically able to compete as others. Yeah. And it's quite psychopathic that, whenever I started getting bored, a, a new thing, ha somebody acts illogically. Yeah. Or somebody acts like you know, in a very... The twists keep coming. And what's so good about it as well is that I suspect the producers might have, have, a, have a whisper in the ear, but I don't think they're told to do anything. No. I think there are maybe kind of, oh, have you thought about telling everyone this? Or, oh, have you thought about this? But it's, it's not... I don't think there's any complicity. So it unfolds so... Quite naturally, yeah. Yeah, naturally and chaotically. Yeah. In a way that you probably couldn't script. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also love Claudia Winkleman's role in it as okay. the kind of facilitator, but she acts very... quite mean to them sometimes. Yeah, well, she, she clearly just loves it. Yeah, 
And but she also starts to kind of have favourites as well. Yeah. She doesn't hide either. She'll be like, I can't believe you banished X and Y. And I, I just think she does it like phenomenally well. She's so deadpan, but also clearly having an absolute riot. But this is it. I think this is why I think the producers just knew they had a hit. It's because she probably went into it being like, right, I'm going to have to be a presenter for the whole time. Yeah. And realised pretty quickly that the whole thing was so crazy that she could be herself and it wouldn't impact how the show would go. Yeah. Um, so big question for you, Naz. Mm. If you were going into the traitors, would you want to be a traitor or a faithful? And why? Traitor, because you're more likely to win. Traitors, you have power. A faithful, you don't. That said, I think that being a traitor over however long it's filming... Stressful. It... I think it really does take a toll. I think, so I would want to be a faithful that could then get converted to be a traitor <laughs> because I don't think I could keep, I'm not very good at lying. Yeah. And I think I would give the game away straight away. And mm. so I'd want to like get in there, get my feelers out. So Ned, that being said, how bingeable would you say this show is? I'd say it's about 10 points of Guinness bingeable. It is completely... It's really, it's completely addictive. After the first episode, I'd say get to the end of the first episode. Yeah. Because until the first time where they actually start stabbing each other in the back, mm -hmm. it's just a bit like a slightly OTT game show. Yeah. You can actually apply for Traitors season two at the moment, filming towards the end of the year. And last night I did actually send the application form to my cousin because she loves games. And I was like, we could go in together and pretend that we're not related mm. and then play the game that way. And then she turned me down. But I, I, would, I would recommend this to pretty much anyone. It's really, it's pretty innocuous, but it's compelling. It's the perfect, like, Saturday night binge fest. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could watch it hungover. Yeah. That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate test. Yes. You could watch it hungover. And I think it's worth a buzz. And I don't, I don't think the next series can be as good because I think it's no. impossible to recapture that rawness. Yeah, because people go in knowingly, yeah. like they've got their strategy. And would you say, given how bingeable it is, would you say it's worth the time yeah, invested in it? Yeah, 100%. I haven't watched all of it. As I said, there are a couple of episodes, maybe kind of, I forget which ones, between seven and ten. Mm. There are a couple of episodes where I was like, all right, I get it. And um, yeah, okay. And then something happened. Every time I got bored, and I've got quite bad attention span. Also, I don't like binging stuff. So for me to, yeah, I get nightmares if I binge stuff too much. I get nightmares generally. I'm going to get the opposite. Quite late, it's getting late of nightmares. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Have You Seen It? The films we were talking about this week were Ennis Men, only out in the cinemas. Panther Pachali, available for free on Amazon Prime. And The Traitors on BBC iPlayer for those of you who bother to buy a TV licence. Tune in next week where we'll be covering Blue Jean, My Neighbor Totoro, and Reason. So like, follow, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram at haveyou.seenit. <laughs>